I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. And this morning's sermon will begin to focus upon the theme of the birth of the Savior that we commemorate this month and spend much time with. And so we'll tend to to veer in the direction of the topical, which is, as you know, unusual for me. But nonetheless, you will find to be thoroughly grounded in the Holy Scriptures. I must tell you that I'm truly, I'm just really excited when we come to this part of the year for our congregation. It is a very, very, very special time. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 41. Will you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and our Father, this minister asks that you will make of him a clean vessel through the blood of Christ and that the Holy Spirit, despite my sins and failings, despite the fact that I, with all of God's people here who know you, that I am also progressively sanctified and working as I move along by the pouring out of your Spirit in my life and the the Word of God to grow just as all of your people are here, depending upon you by faith. But Father, open the hearts of everyone here, for all believers here are in need of growth and grace. We are in need of the cleansing blood of Christ to be applied to our hearts daily. And what a wonderful word it is that we look at this morning, and indeed throughout this month, as we focus together upon the incarnation of our Lord. But Father, there also will be, especially this month, those who will come to our services who are strangers to you, who do not know you, who are strangers to grace. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will open their hearts, that they also, with childlike faith, will embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of their lives. And these things we ask and pray as we now come to this text and several others in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for our sins, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand? Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 41. This is the Word of God. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, if Jesus were not God, the second person of the Trinity who assumed human nature, then you and I are still in our sins. The deity of Jesus Christ is fundamental to the Christian faith. And in this passage, in Matthew 22, Jesus, having silenced leaders who have asked him questions, now turns the table and asks 
them a question. He wants them to acknowledge what the scriptures have to say about who the Messiah is. So the first thing we want to see as we look this morning at this and other texts is this. The first thing, Jesus teaches his own deity. Jesus teaches that he is God in the flesh. So the question is, who is the Christ? Now, the fundamental issue in this passage is the Messiah's identity. Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer, well, he's the son of David. Now, that was a correct answer. That's absolutely right. But Jesus drives them deeper in verses 43 and following. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So David called the Messiah his Lord. He cites Psalm 110 that we used together in our responsive reading this morning. David speaking by divine inspiration, by the Spirit, the text tells us, says, he is Lord. They will all say that the Messiah will be the son of David, But Jesus is saying, you haven't thought deeply enough. He also is the Lord. In view of Psalm 110, whose son is he? The Messiah is the divine Messiah. And this silences the Pharisees, and they don't want to ask him any more questions. And they are caught in their their own confusion. Now be sure to understand Jesus' argument here. How can the Christ be merely David's son when David, by divine inspiration, calls the Messiah his Lord? Seated on the right hand of God, which means the place of sovereign authority and sovereign control. In Psalm 110 then, David falls down and he worships the divine Messiah. Jehovah is heard with this internal speech and love and communion, Jehovah is heard speaking to Adonai and affirms the unity of the Godhead while also affirming the distinction of persons in the Holy Trinity. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. Our catechism rightly summarizes what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. There is no Christianity without the Trinity. There is no Christianity without the deity of Christ. And the amazing thing in this passage is that Jesus, now here he is, fully man, standing before them. Jesus affirms his own deity. Now this invites us to investigate all of the scriptures comprehensively, which we cannot do this morning but we will selectively limit ourselves to a few New Testament passages that underscore the deity of Jesus Christ. So the second thing to notice is, the second thing, specific references to Christ's deity in the New Testament. Now think of the writings of John. As we come to that opening prologue, magnificent prologue, John 1, 1 through 14, 1 through 18, it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So beginning cannot be predicated of the Word, the Logos, Jesus, the Son. 
And there is distinction within the Godhead, but also identity. There is distinction. There is the Father. There is the Word, but also the Word of Him it was said, He was God. He is eternal, self-existent, the Logos distinguished from, but identical in being with God. One essence, one being. John 5.18 is another. The Jews, you might remember, sought all the more to kill him, the text tells us. Why? The text says, he said God was his father, making himself equal with God. And in this text, John 5.18, we also see in that context that he affirms his authority to raise the dead, and he affirms his authority to execute judgment, divine prerogatives he claimed for himself. And in John 10, we see something similar. The Jews want to stone him again. Why? The text says, because thou being a man makest thyself God. Or think of those wonderful passages in John's gospel that we call the I am passages. I am the door, I am the way. But there is one passage in particular in John chapter 8, verse 58, in which Jesus simply says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It is I am without a predicate. Simply, I am. Pointing back to Exodus chapter 3, in which Jehovah identifies himself as the great I am. And again in verse 59 of John 8, we are told that the Jews took up stones to stone him because it was very clear that he was affirming his own deity. Or after the resurrection of Jesus, where we have doubting Thomas, and Thomas is confronted with the risen Lord there in bodily resurrection standing before him, and he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't say, no way, that's not quite right. He doesn't correct him. Because what Thomas is affirming is what John's gospel has been affirming all along, the full deity of Jesus Christ. Or if we turn to that first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, we read this, And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Referring to Christ, this one is the true God and eternal life. Now, let's turn quickly to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Does Paul affirm the deity of Christ? A few examples. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, we read of the incarnation of our Lord, how he came and assumed human nature. And in chapter 2, we read that he is in the form of God, in morphe theu. The term morphe means the character or essence of a thing. And so in Philippians 2, the apostle Paul is affirming the true nature of Jesus, the one who assumed human nature, is God. Or you might want to turn to this one, Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, do I hear pages? Titus 2. 
Titus 2.13. Picking it up at verse 11 in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, he's not distinguishing our great God and someone else, the Savior, Jesus Christ. There's applicable here something that in Greek grammar is called the Granville Sharp rule, and there's no reason for me to try and unpack that rule this morning, but simply to say our great God and Savior, according to the grammar, refer to the very same individual. Paul the Apostle in Titus 2.13 is affirming the full deity of Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, 13, you know this, that in Romans 10, he says, speaking of Jesus, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, again referring to Jesus, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the Apostle Paul is quoting Joel 2, 9, which says that of Jehovah. So he can take that passage that applies to Jehovah and he can apply it directly to Jesus in Romans 10.13. In Romans 9.5, the apostle says, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. In Colossians 1.16 and 17, and in chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians, we read magnificent words about the deity of Christ. For by him all things were created, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Or we could turn to the general epistles, sometimes called the Catholic epistles. And here we're thinking, for example, of the first, if you'll turn there, the opening of the book of Hebrews. And in the opening of the book of Hebrews, this is how the Lord Jesus is described by the writer, by divine inspiration. Just looking at the first three verses. Hebrews chapter 1. You know, when George Whitfield was preaching in Scotland, what amazed him was that the Scottish Presbyterians brought their Bibles to church and he could hear the flipping of the pages. I like that. Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or look at verse 8 of Hebrews 1. But of the Son, he says, now this is taking from Psalm 45, applying it directly to Jesus, the Son. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Communion within the Trinity. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 11 
twice speaks of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we've just taken from John's writings, Paul's writings, and a couple of places in the general epistles, explicit references to the full deity of Jesus Christ. Children, do you understand that what we are saying, what the Bible is saying, is that this Jesus whom we worship is God himself. That's what the New Testament is teaching. Leading me to a third point to mention briefly. The title Lord in the New Testament, as it is applied in many places to Christ, indicates Christ's full deity. Now, in some places, the term kurios, Lord, simply means something like master. But in some places, it is unmistakable that it is a reference to his deity. You see the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, translates Jehovah with the word kurios. And when the New Testament speaks of Jesus as Lord, it means that he is Jehovah. One explicit reference to this is the end of Philippians 2, which speaks of the time that is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But what you have to understand is the Apostle Paul has gone all the way back to Isaiah 45 that says that of Jehovah. And at the end of Philippians 2, he applies it directly to Jesus Christ. It would be blasphemous to ascribe to him lordship in this sense. That passage from Isaiah 45 applied to Jesus. It would be blasphemous to apply to him were he not one in essence with the Father. Now, investigating the New Testament as a whole, this leads to a fourth point that I want to make. And it is that attributes of God are ascribed in the New Testament to Jesus. Is God eternal? Jesus is eternal. John 1, 2, he was in the beginning with God. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Is God immutable? Is he unchangeable in his essence and nature? So is the Savior who assumed human nature without ceasing to be the God that he had always been. Hebrews 1, 11 and 12 applies Psalm 102 directly to Christ. What is Psalm 102 that is applied to Christ in Hebrews say? It says, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will have no end eternality, immutability applied to Christ. And then, as we move along, we ask the question, is God omnipresent? Well, Jesus is omnipresent. That is to say, yes, he was fully human, but at the same time, he is God, and as God, he is omnipresent. When he came into this world, there was no vacancy in the Trinity. He continued the God he had always been. And the God, the God who came into this world, assuming human nature, is fully God and fully man. Omnipresence, Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. Jesus says, I am in the midst. And so the New Testament claims for Jesus universal lordship and universal presence throughout space and time, even though as the God-man, his body is local in heaven, 
Nonetheless, in his Godhead, he is everywhere present. Is God omnipotent? Well, Jesus is omnipotent, Hebrews 1.3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so we could go on and on. Uh, eternality, immutability, omnipresence, omnipotence are all ascribed in the New Testament to Jesus. Now to look further, a fifth point, a fifth point. Divine prerogatives belong to Jesus. Who is it that forgives sins, I ask you? Who alone can forgive sins? God. And yet Jesus forgives sins. In Mark 2, we have the healing of the paralytic who is let down through the roof, you recall. And not only does he heal the body, but he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes, of course, are very upset because they understand that only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is claiming to forgive this man his sins. Prayer is offered to Jesus. For example, in Acts 7.59, as Stephen is martyred, he sees Jesus standing to receive him. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He prays to Jesus. It would be blasphemy to pray to Jesus were he not God. Jesus is worshipped. Matthew 28, 17, the 11 disciples worshiped him after his resurrection. 2 Timothy 4, 18, speaking of Jesus, Paul says to him, to Jesus, be glory forever and ever, the full deity of Christ. Jesus is worshiped. Who alone is Savior? Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. But especially at this time of the year, we remember, do we not? You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is the Savior. Who is the creator? God alone. But Jesus is the creator and governor over the world. We see that in John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. Who alone is judge? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We read in Genesis, it is God who is judge. But according to John 5 and 2 Corinthians 5 and Revelation 20, the judge is Jesus. And you know, my personal favorite of all of the New Testament references to ascribing to Jesus divine prerogatives is simply by reading Mark's gospel chapters 4 through 6. Because Jesus things, does things, performs things that are, that are ascribed to Jehovah in Psalm 107. In the 107th Psalm, we read that Jehovah stills the sea. Jehovah raises the dead. Jehovah feeds the hungry in the desert. Jehovah delivers his disciples from terror. And when we read chapters 4 through 6 of Mark's gospel, it is Jesus who stills the sea, Jesus who raises the dead, Jesus who feeds the hungry and the desert, and Jesus who delivers his disciples from terror. Who is Jesus? Mark is intentionally saying in those passages, he is God. In Isaiah 40, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness makes straight a highway for our God is applied directly by John the Baptist to Jesus. And Jesus' deity is integral to 
the Trinitarian name. We are told that we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The definite articles distinguish the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there are not three names. There is one name we baptize in the singular name of the three persons of the Trinity. Because name means being, character, attributes. So there is one being, there are three persons, and the Son is God along with the Father and the Spirit. Now folks, we could go on and on and on and on looking at the New Testament and the Old, and we see clear evidence of the full deity of Christ in both. We have already seen from a a very brief review this morning that there is a specific reference to Jesus' deity in the New Testament, in John's writings, in Paul's writings, in the general epistles, that the title Lord means that deity is ascribed to Jesus, that attributes that belong to God are ascribed to Jesus, that divine prerogatives that belong to God are ascribed to Christ. And behind it all, Jesus teaches his own deity. Jesus, let me affirm with the greatest of delight as I stand in this pulpit this morning, yes, I do know that there are ministers standing in pulpits all over the land this morning many of whom will tell you that Jesus is not God and will deny the deity of Christ and deny the incarnation, and they will make of Christmas just some kind of myth. It is my delight to be able to say to you on the authority of God's word, your Savior, Jesus Christ, is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Which leads me to this, sixthly, what does it matter Why does it matter? Why do we want to spend some time with this as we set up our Christmas Sundays and worship together for this month? Well, there are many reasons. It's true, and truth is always paramount and important. But let me focus on one reason that it's important, just one. The reason is Jesus could not be your Savior were he not God who assumed human nature? Let me repeat it, and we will be saying it over and over in various ways and from various angles for the rest of this month. In particular this month, Jesus could not be your Savior were he not God who assumed human nature. A while back, I listened to uh, a lecture of W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell was uh, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, um, held to the inerrancy of Scripture, um, a man that certainly we should respect. He is one who, um, who addressed the liberal trends in the Southern Baptist Convention, and a lot of the conservative response that has come over these years is really traceable to his influence. And in the 80s, he delivered a lecture at the Southern Baptist Convention, and it was entitled The Curse of Liberalism. And at the end, he tells a story 
of a young woman who came forward in one of their worship services at First Baptist Church in Dallas. You know, it's typical in Baptist churches uh, to have an invitation at the end and people come down the aisle. Uh, I don't think that's the right approach, but that's for another time. That's not my point this morning. Just let me say the invitation is now. It's in the preaching. <laughs> you see? It's in the preaching. It's not something just attached. It's always there. In any case, Dr. Criswell invited, and this woman came, this young woman, and she came down, said that she wanted to receive Christ, and that she wanted to be a church member, and as is typical in those settings, they sign a card. They give you all the data, who, who I am, where I live, and so forth, and she signed a card. But as she was signing the card, she began to weep, just hopelessly, helplessly weep. And Dr. Criswell sat down beside her. A girl, he said, was about 16 years old. And he sat down beside her and said, dear, why are you weeping? And she said, "Uh, if you just knew. You see this missus that I've written here? This missus that I've written? Uh, I'm no missus. I've never been married. And here I am. If you you and your church members knew who who I am, you wouldn't want me. You wouldn't want me. You see, I'm I'm pregnant. Uh, I'm a prostitute. Uh, you You wouldn't want me. That missus is just a lie. Now I ask you this question. What would some liberal minister sitting beside her say? What, what gospel would they have to offer to this young woman? I mean by that someone who denies the deity of Christ, doesn't believe in the incarnation, just says it's all a myth. Maybe uses Christian language before his congregation, but he really doesn't believe it. What might he have to say? Well, some of this is from Chris Wool, some of um, it's from me. Well, one liberal minister might say, well, most people just live that way. It's nothing. It's a piccadilla. Just don't worry about it. Just forget it. Another one might say, well, down the street, there's an abortion clinic. It's very near. And, you know, we'll help you and we'll get you there and you can remove the problem. Another might say, well, you know, we have a class in our church that teaches you how to have sex and to protect yourself from pregnancy and from sexually transmitted diseases, and we do that in our church. We'll be glad to enroll you in that class. There are some liberal, liberal churches that do that. Or another might say, well, you're just free to make those choices. Another might attempt to moralize her into the kingdom and to say, well, just live better. That's all that's required. Someone might even say there's forgiveness with God, but he has no basis for it because he doesn't believe that God came into this world to save sinners and that he died on a cross. What will the gospel minister say? What would Dr. Crispell say? What would I say? Jeff, Adam, what would we say? Well, Dr. Crispell says something like this. He said, we do want you here because you see everybody here is a sinner in need of grace. We want you here. You've, you've trusted in Christ. You have believed in the Lord Jesus. Jesus can make you clean. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Now maybe you've not 
thought of that as a Christmas hymn, but that's the whole point of Christmas. Jesus came into this world. God assumed human nature that he might obey the law we broke, that he might be our substitute on the cross, that he might pay the penalty of our sins. I ask you, as we have surveyed briefly this morning, Jesus teaching his own deity, John's gospel, Paul, these other places in the New Testament that speak of the deity of Christ, I ask you, is the deity of Christ important? It is important, people. It is important because without it, you would be lost forever, and so would I. Why did God become man? Because man sinned, and man must pay the price. But because the price was an infinite price, only God could assume human nature and could cleanse that sinner, that soul, that young girl, you or me, from our sin. And that girl, by the way, Dr. Criswell said, that girl was there every Sunday, trusted in the Lord Jesus, brought her little boy, and by the time Dr. Criswell was addressing the Southern Baptist Convention on the curse of liberalism, he said that little boy now is, uh, is in our youth department in our church. That's why God became man. Yep. To save that young 16, 17-year-old girl from her sins, to save her boy, to save sinners like, like me and like you. Jesus is God in the flesh. He did not despise the virgin's womb. The greatest of mysteries is that God would become what he was not while never ceasing to be who he had always been. And that's why the cross is effective, because his infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value. That's why the two natures in one person, God and man, forever. Now, I'm telling you, I have so much to say about this, and we've just scratched the surface. And you know what? At the end of December, we also still will have only scratched the surface. But what does this deserve from you? You profess Christ's name. What does this deserve from you and deserve from me? Every year I quote this. It's from Milne. You know it. If Jesus Christ shares the nature of God, we are called upon to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption. So how may you apply this to your heart right now as a believer in Jesus? What does Christ deserve who came into this world and gave himself for my sins? I read somewhere of a Christian who on his deathbed, just as he was near death, began to say over and over, bring, bring, bring. And so his family gathered around him, bring, what do you want brought? Bring, bring. Bring water? No. Bring medicine? No. Bring the Bible to read to you? Even at this time, the answer was no. Bring what? And with his last breath, he said, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. 
That's what he deserves. That's what he deserves. May we increasingly give it. And God's people said, amen. amen.